My guest today is Bruno Peshek. Bruno is an innovation expert helping corporates make viable investment in innovation. Bruno is also the co-creator of Playing Lean, an award-winning board game that helps enterprises, universities, startups, and accelerators learn lean startup principle. He's also the co-author of the newly released book, Augmented Strategy. Bruno, welcome to the podcast. Etienne, so happy to be here. So we're, we're both early adopters of the lean startup, lean startup principles. Do you remember uh, how you first heard about the lean startup and what initially attracted you to the lean startup? Absolutely. Although I must, uh, I have a confession to make. I was definitely not an early adopter of the lean startup method. Oh. In fact, in fact, uh, I would say that I got into it quite late and I'm, I'm going to share a little bit more why. So by trade and by training, I'm actually an industrial engineer. And I used to study aeronautical engineering, you know, guys that make planes. But during studies, I heard about Toyota production system and I was mind blown. I was like, wow, this, this is what I want to study. So, you know, I, I, I work with Toyota. I was trained by them, corporate value creation, innovation, etc. And the Toyota production system, lean manufacturing, lean thinking was always something that, you know, I'm very interested in. And I was considered myself a lean practitioner. So I actually did hear about lean startup, not in 2008 when it was actually happening in the USA, but later when the book came out. But my thinking back then, that was what 2011 was, you know, what is this? Another gimmick, mm-hmm. you know, let, let, let them prove themselves. I kid you not. At that time, it was lean everything. There was lean wardrobe. That, that was the scene in 2010s. So to me, it was, you know, like, what is this? Like, who, who cares? And then it was actually five years later in 2016 that I actually revisited. I saw, okay, Lean Startup is still here. Let's take a look. What, what, what is this actually about? And what I realized then being more mature myself is like, hey, this is actually a viable alternative method for both business development and product development. And there weren't that many lightweight methods that were combining both of this. There, there were many methods for developing products based on insight, but they were all very cumbersome. So like if you talk to engineers, most of them will know about quality function deployment. It's a total overkill. And then you had design for Six Sigma, another total overkill, all, ve- all, uh, all very process heavy approaches. And then there was Lean Startup, which was basically on the surface, you know, fuck it, try it. Sorry, uh, you're, you're gonna have to beep that out. But, but I will it, not. It was kind of, you know, <laughs> I, I have an idea. Let's go and try it out. There was more to that. That is obviously very superficial approach. But you know, when you look at it from the outside, it seemed like, oh wow, anyone can try this. You don't need to have a PhD. You don't need to be an engineer. You don't need to have uh, 20 years of education or R&D background to try to come up with something new. And that was kind of when I started paying more attention and when, when I took a deep dive in the method, started applying it myself, combining it with the knowledge I have and figuring out, okay, is this good or not? So <laughs> that that you, was all over the place. <laughs> yeah, no, it's perfect. So did you end up buying the, uh, the, the Lean Startup clothing? No, <laughs> but I, I did get it. Oh, okay. Uh, so <laughs> believe it or not, the Lean Startup was released 3,008... 3,851 days ago today on March 30th, 2022. So of all the things that we associate with the Lean Startup movement, so what do you feel uh, has stayed true and what do you feel is not talked about enough today? 
Okay. Very interesting question. Uh, first, my, my assessment of Lean Startup as a movement is that it's dead. It's been uh, absorbed by others. If you look at Eric Ries and if you look at all the, let's say, consultants that, that came later, they were all focused on startups, realized there's no money there. And then they started pivoting to, hey, we want to serve corporates. We want to either be consultants. We want to build venture studios. We want to build governance structures and things like that. That is the evolution we have seen. Uh, Lean Startup as set of principles has been kind of absorbed by agile movement, which is much bigger and kind of is considered kind of part of product development practices. Is that good or bad? I know we could probably have very long discussions, but that is kind of my assessment. There are no strong lean startup thought leaders, I would say anymore. They either moved into innovation, fully innovation space, agile space, or entrepreneurial space. That is what I would say the situation is today. That does not mean that lean startup is useless. I still think it's a very good process, but in terms of, of standalone community or standalone movement, I don't think it exists anymore as it was. So if you remember 10 years ago, a lot of grassroots communities, a lot of movement. I mean, I did uh, bring Norwegian Lean Startup Circle, which was just, you know, Lean Startup Circles were all over the globe. And we had a Norwegian chapter as well. There are very few, if any, active Lean Startup Circles anymore. And as I said, it's like, all, all, all the forerunners, I would say, are now gone. They, they, they pick different niches. They don't promote themselves anymore as lean startup experts or anything of a kind. Well, so do you feel like all the principles have been swallowed up by Agile or have been adopted? Or there's some of them that have kind of faded away or like that have not become... Because if that, that is the case, if you're, you're starting from the assumption that all of it was absorbed by Agile, you could make the case that this was pretty successful, right? That, that everything that was put forward actually worked out, right? Mm -hmm. So, of course, you can make the case. I was not, I want to be clear, I was not making the case it was a failure or anything. Oh, no, no. Just, yeah. yeah. Uh, in terms of, when I say it got absorbed, it doesn't mean it got absorbed successfully. <laughs> I mean, agile, agile is very popular, but I would say there are very few good practitioners, both on the individual and the company level. The same goes for lean startup. So if, if you multiply mediocre with mediocre, you get very bad. You don't get another mediocre. So it's kind of, you know, in my experience, when I walk into companies and uh, even startups that claim that they're using lean startup or agile, I will very rarely see that everything has been fully adopted. Mm -hmm. But what's, what usually happens is that superficial things get adopted. Things get confused. Th people think that being iterative means being clueless. It doesn't. Like Agile did not say planning is bad. Agile says sticking to the plan when everything is going wrong is bad. That, that's what Agile is. Not try something and then figure out what works. The same for Lean Startup. It isn't iterating until you finally hit that golden thing. It is understanding where you are today all the information you have, figuring out what is it that you need to learn, iterate, test before you start scaling. We had a discussion earlier today, kind of product market fit, that it is what it is about. If you cannot figure that out, why are you doing this? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's interesting because you are seeing in 2022 or 2021, 
we're seeing a bit of a resurgence of innovation accounting, uh, which has been interesting to me because that seems to be one of the aspects that got a little bit pushed to the side by a lot of companies. Uh, any thoughts on why that is? Like, why is that yeah. making a comeback? If you're saying that a lot of, well, if you're saying we're both saying it, that that a lot of the lean startup principles have kind of been swallowed up by a bigger thing or like the, yeah. the thing. Yeah. So a um, few reasons. When, when we go back to, to the five original principles and to those that are listening, watching that aren't familiar, it's basically entrepreneurs are everywhere. Entrepreneurship is management, uh, innovation, uh, accounting, validated learning and build, measure, learn loop. Those were the five core principles. And what I like to say, like the first two, entrepreneurs are everywhere and entrepreneurship is management. Uh, they're fluffy ones. Yeah. Entrepreneurs are everywhere. It's kind of more about allowing employees, regardless of their role, to propose ideas. Entrepreneurship is management is an important one, but isn't necessarily limited just to lean startup. To me, the biggest contribution of that was understanding, hey, there are some skills and practices and capabilities we can develop. Therefore, entrepreneurship and innovation aren't just pure luck. Okay, good, useful, people understood it. Validated learning, people still suck at it. It is very difficult, but experimentation skills have gotten much, much better. Also a lot due to popularization from Google, quantitative uh, testing, etc. That's not everything that has to do with experimentation, but it did get more popular. Innovation accounting principle was always the least understood one and the least explored one. Originally, what Eric Ries basically just said about it is, you know, different set of metrics that are more appropriate for early stage ventures. I would say that that was aside because the whole, not market, but the whole movement was less mature. And because basically the, the, the thought leaders or the, let's say, most skilled practitioners either went into innovation space or entrepreneurial space, they did continue developing some of the things that were more arcane, if you want. Innovation accounting, I've been working a lot with Dan Toma. I mean, uh, he literally wrote a book, Innovation Accounting, and I wrote a chapter and contributed more than a chapter. Innovation accounting is a thing that's most beneficial to actually large organizations, not necessarily to startups, because in innovation, you cannot guarantee outcome. You cannot guarantee uh, time. You cannot guarantee deliverables. You cannot guarantee a lot of stuff. The only things that you do control is cost. How many hours do you spend on this? How do you set up the operations? How do you innovate? How do you do the innovation process? Do you use your lean B2B approach? Do you use some other approaches that you control? And that's why innovation accounting becomes important. And another thing is in organizations, we're looking at hundreds, or more of ideas. So innovation accounting becomes not measuring one, that's trivial, measuring hundreds. And how do you aggregate that up to the board level where there are people who maybe never have seen those ideas or met those teams and that they don't make retarded decisions, but that they make a good informed decision. That is why I would say that there is more on innovation accounting today, but it's not overwhelming more. It's like <laughs> just a little bit more. <laughs> Well, to that sense, like, is this still the innovation accounting that Eric Ries had uh, thought about or considered in 2011? Or is this something completely new that is kind of using the word innovation accounting, right? Well, I wouldn't say it's completely new. I think it's still in the spirit and it's taking mm -hmm. that idea and 
developing it in a way there was no pivot so so kind of you know if we go up to another term that eric Ries popularized like a pivot a yeah. change in strategy without the change of vision i would say that both the vision remained the same but the strategies as well because innovation accounting at least how we're presenting in the innovation accounting book still has the same things but details how to actually accomplish what we were saying from the very beginning mm -hmm. that innovation accounting is because the intersection between accounting skills, innovation skills, and entrepreneurial skills, it doesn't happen so often. So somebody needs to sit down, study all the accounting things, what makes accounting work, what makes innovation work in the large companies, in the small companies, and then figure out something that works and then test it with organizations. So it, it's, it's a big commitment. And that's why I also think that there haven't been like 200 books on yeah. innovation accounting. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So, okay, so there is a little bit of an interesting, uh, interesting, I guess, intersection with the next question then. So you mentioned that, that the lead startup principles, there has been an evolution, not necessarily all positive for, for everything, but you are the creator of uh, Playing Lead, Playing Lead 2 even. Um, so what led you to creating uh, Playing Lead? Like why a game? Yeah, so a uh, few things. Uh, my friend, Simon, uh, he used to run an IT consultancy, agile consultancy, in fact. So it was IT services and agile consultancy. And what they were often doing is they were use uh, board games and visual tools when training executives. For example, in uh, Kanban, software Kanban, not Toyota Kanban, uh, there is Get Kanban game. It's a very easy game to use. You play it for a day and people understand because they experience it. They understand flow, importance of flow, planning, ta, 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 ta. Uh, And he had the same idea for Lean Startup. He didn't want just to buy books to executives. Uh, this was 2015. I met Simon in 2016 and we started working together. What I'm very proud of with playing Lean is that we developed the game for teaching Lean Startup using Lean Startup principles and the approach. So we were creating a lot of prototypes, testing with players, testing with users, making sure that the learning is there, making sure that the experience is there. And then we decided to crowdfund it. And it was a big failure. <laughs> we lost. Yeah, but uh, you know, we, we had so many tests. We were using the method itself. We were confused, like, okay, if people were getting you know, what they were supposed to get, not what they were telling us, why is this not succeeding? And then we looked at people who were actually buying and we understood our fundamental confusion or our fundament, fundamental assumption where we went wrong without being aware of it, obviously. We assumed that the customer of the game would be the player. What turned out is that the customer, the buyer is actually facilitator, person like you and me, the educator, the consultant, not the, not the player. The player wants to come learn Lean Startup, and then go back to their world to do the business, to improve their business using Lean Startup method. When we realized that, we started investigating, okay, what is important to buyers like you and me? First, it has to look professional. It has to look good on the bookshelf. It has to be something when I come to the boardroom, people don't laugh me out. It's, it cannot have clipboard art. And then the second thing was, who are those guys in Norway? If this is a the tool for teaching the method, then some of the thought leaders must endorse it. 
So we said, okay, let's go to Eshmaoria, let's go to Alexander Ostwalder, you know, let's go to them and let's get their seal of approval. You know, all these things that in essence didn't have anything to do with the content itself. Educational content was there, but the packaging wasn't. We learned that, bam, success, playing Lean 2, bam, success, you know, now used all over the world, institutions, big companies, education institutions, accelerators, etc. But that's not the answer to your question. If I'm saying this, why did you decide to make a Lean Startup Board? Yeah. Because despite all this, remember what I said in the beginning, I still see, use, and experience Lean Startup as a viable, lightweight approach to developing businesses and products as an integrated process. Because usually when you look at how companies and even startups, because that's what they're taught either at uni or high school or they see, they, they, they perceive product development as separate from business development, as separate from sales development. Yes, Steve Blank introduced us to customer development. Yes, it's exactly the same problem Steve Blank tried to solve with customer development. But the, th the thing is, very few people will pick up the book. And yeah. even if they do, very few people will finish that book. And that is why Eric Ries did a great job with Lean Startup. He made it accessible. And that's why we decided to continue in that route, say, okay, it's still a good approach, better than nothing and better than traditional approach. Why board game? Because it creates a safe space. You know that Lean Startup is all about failing and learning from that failure. It's much easier to fail in the game and get a little bit ashamed, you know, and maybe mocked by, by other players but you, your brain actually remembers that experience. And when you go back to your office, you will connect a real situation to a gamified situation and you will make a better decision. That's kind of the science, the science behind it. And what's the impact that you've seen from uh, enterprises, universities, or people that have uh, been adopting the game? So... Recent, uh, most recently at uh, British Telecom, very large organization, very traditional. Don't need to tell <laughs> anyone, anyone about that. The most powerful role of playing lean or any good game in the business setting is that it opens the doors to change. You do not use games or simulations to become an expert. That's only possible in the real world. But to open the doors to change, to get the naysayers to become more open to trying something different that's that's how playing lean is supposed and is used in the corporate setting you don't become a lean startup expert after a day of playing the game but what you do is you go from seeing a slide to actually understanding oh if i actually try to learn about the customers then it's easier to win in the game and yes, in reality, of course, if I know what my customer want, then I can develop exactly that and I can charge them more. Therefore, I will have more of the market share. Uh, with the game, we, you go from Etienne or Bruno telling them this is what you should do and why you should do it to actually them feeling, experiencing and concluding that's what I should do in order to get that result. And flipping that around is so powerful it's like what a lot of very good teachers actually do and th that that is kind of the, the effect that we're always going for and that is underlying and, and and built built into it a similar use case is for accelerators where obviously they're even faster learners because they care about their own business it's not yeah, like yeah. taking a salary of course <laughs> survival exactly exactly see 
you were mentioning that you were an uh, uh, industrial designer before. Uh, so that's an engineer, not, not oh, designer. Oops, industrial engineer. So what initially attracted you to corporate innovation and what has kept you in corporate innovation? I'm an accidental innovator. That, that's, that's what I like to say. Actually, uh, for a long time, I didn't even consider myself to be a, a creative person. I always consider myself to be someone, you know, give me a problem. I'm going to solve it. I'm going to look at the things, solutions that exist out there. I'm going to recombine them and, you know, figure out the gaps and then come up with something, something new. Th that was always kind of my self-perception. Self and that's changed over the years, obviously, as I matured as individual. But uh, where it really started was when I finished my education, my first jobs were in defense. And one of the big projects I worked on was customer asking for the impossible. And... Uh, I was a young engineer in a team of young engineers, and we took that very personally. So, you know, we, we did everything we could to come up with the impossible, and we did. And the customer did not believe us and did not want to buy it. And to, to me, that, that, that was the beginning of the journey. It's like, this doesn't make sense. Like, I used everything I know from my education to, like, be creative, innovative. I was, in fact, inventive, not innovative. Because we did invent what the customer wanted, but the value to them was not obvious. Therefore, mm -hmm. no innovation actually transpired. But that was for me the trigger to kind of start looking into, okay, what is actually innovation? And what, what makes innovation work? And I realized it's not just about technical stuff. It's a lot about human stuff. And that is how I went slowly into the space and realized that I really, really enjoy different challenges. And to me, innovation provides that. Like it's uncertain, it's unknown, it's dirty. You need to be learning fast. You're working with many people, so many moving parts. You, you know, uh, things are almost exploding everywhere around you. What worked today may not work tomorrow. <laughs> it's a it's crazy world, but I love that world. And I, I have the freedom to choose, you know, what I work on and whom I work with. And, you know, I don't have better answer than I feel pleasure from it. Right now, it's pleasant. Maybe 30 years from now, I won't be in the space anymore. But for the last 10 years, I've been really enjoying it. 30 years from now, you'll probably retired. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Uh, so uh, having worked with a lot of car corporates and been in the field in different roles, capacities, um, what have you observed? Like, what, what types of innovations do you see getting funded? And what tends not to be getting funded? Mm -hmm. In corporates, what I've observed again and again and again, what gets or doesn't get funded has very little, if nothing, to do with the idea itself. It has all to do with the innovator or the idea owner. What I mean by that, those that are able to navigate the organization, that have the social or other type of skills that can get in front of the CEO or someone with power, their ideas get funded. Those that just think, well, my idea is good. And if it's good, someone is going to fund it. They usually don't get anything. So th that is my unfortunate observation, mostly across Europe and North America. Uh, is that good or bad? I don't say that's necessarily bad by itself. Of course, innovation is about um, promulgating ideas, sharing them in network, bouncing, connecting the dots. Of course, that's important doesn't mean that the person that cannot do that has a bad idea. But the thing is, what we often say, if something is to be sold, people need to see about it, hear about it, smell it, use it, taste it. 
So it, it does make sense that the same process actually happens within the organizations. So that's that's been my experience so far. But does that doesn't that that kind of hint at the fact that it kind of reverts to a bit of a IPO type of uh, situation, where the people with the most influence or the most clout will tend to get their projects adopted, which kind of defeats the purpose of having, uh, I guess, uh, something that kind of fleshes out which ones are the best innovation or the best opportunities. Exactly. And that's, uh, that's exactly why, why companies can, larger companies specifically, can benefit from introducing innovation portfolios, having an innovation strategy that's uh, not hidden, but clear and transparent and communicated by introducing innovation accounting systems. All of these are tools for surfacing this type of situations. If you go back to Toyota production system and the whole uh, flow, pull instead of push, uh, how Taichi Ono and Toyota family like to illustrate that is imagine like you have a river and you start reducing the, the, the water level and you start seeing the rocks and then you remove the rocks and then you increase the water level again and the flow is better. All these tools do the same for innovation in a company. You start draining the river to start surfacing all those people that are actually maybe hippos or that are getting their ideas funded not on the strength of the idea alone, but on the strength of their character and ability to navigate the organization. As I say, that by itself is not bad unless they're proposing shitty ideas, then it's bad. <laughs> so the systems like that, they make it visible to everybody. Okay, what is the idea? Who is the proposer? What is the idea about? What's the potential upside? Then you're able to make much more informed decision that in, takes into account both the quality of the idea as well as innovator, entrepreneur, whomever. And both you and I, we know that team uh, is more important than the idea. But if, if idea is zero, doesn't matter how good the team is, it's yeah. still a zero. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so if, if uh, a, a person, uh, so the corporate innovator is not in control or doesn't have a, is not able to fund his own uh, innovation. So what do you feel are the, biggest challenges that they're facing mm. so I, i've i work with many innovators in that role uh, luckily for them when i engage with my clients i'm hired by executives <laughs> so so when i'm there obviously they, they have already set us on funds so it's much easier for them to get their idea funded but let's say we are not working together you're just someone listening watching and you have this brilliant idea my suggestion is first make sure that you actually do have an idea. What I mean by that, grab a piece of paper, write down what the hell is it about? Who is it for? How are they going to be better off? Make sure to put it out of your head because you might be in a situation when you're trying to sell your idea, but people aren't getting you because you haven't clarified what is your idea actually about. Then the next thing is before you even try to sell it to your boss, once you have put it down, Try to find out, okay, what's your company strategy? What's, what's business strategy? Check out, you know, what's your boss's boss measured on? What's your boss's boss supposed to deliver? Is your idea aligned with that? Will it help them with that? Will it make their life easier? Will it help them get their bonus? Not just your idea funded. When you have all these check marks, okay, now you have your case to go to your boss or to your boss's boss and to start the conversation. Hey, I have this idea. This is how it's going to help our customers do X, Y, Z better. 
This is how it's going to make our life easier. This is how it's going to make you look good in front of your boss. You might feel cringy hearing this, but let, let's, let's be honest. It is about you also making your boss look good if you're an innovator and if you want to get your idea funded. We have to accept the social reality of our organization. That doesn't mean you selling yourself out. It just means being, being smart. That is the best starting point. The third one is uh, there's usually a question or a statement raised, there's no money for it. Your idea is brilliant, no money for it. That's a fallacy because money in organizations is all about priorities. There is money, but your idea isn't the priority. The easiest way around that is something that you at the end are also talking about, ROI. Of course, if your idea is really something new, it's impossible to show ROI, but what you can do is focus on the opportunity cost. How much does it cost not to go for your idea? For example, if, if the company keeps doing what they are, are they going to maintain the same level of revenue, quality of service, whatever cost of service efficiency, or is it going to go down? In every natural system, decay is the natural thing. So you always must make investments to actually keep the same level of performance. So your idea should beat that decay and add on top of it. If, if, if you can do that, at least make an estimate, then you have beating decay, adding on top of it, bam, you have your case that you can make. You're most likely going to be wrong because at this level, you cannot say we're going to make $100 million, but you won't be wrong by a magnitude of a hundred or a thousand. <laughs> if you are, you're probably going to get fired at the end of the project, but <laughs> you can't win them all. You can't sell your project and, and don't have skin in the game. Well, so, so in that case, like how do you develop those skills of like, figure out how to, to kind of bring that. I mean, I'm, I'm understanding that there's a big part of that that's change management, stakeholder management. Like, how do you, how would you recommend someone kind of picks that up or, or learns that, learn that part of the equation that seems to be so critical to actually getting uh, innovative ideas out the door? Mm -hmm. So what I, when I work uh, with business leaders, what I always tell them is, uh, Big banks are not a good approach. Like big bank change management isn't a good approach unless there's a big trauma happening. Like we had with COVID, like we are having with the war. So th that are kind of big things that, that can drive very big changes. So a lot of people are joking, what has driven your digital transformation? COVID. We are not talking about that. that that's, that's not normal. You cannot... You shouldn't try to create a burning platform or things like that. It's, yeah. it's not a good motivator. Much better approach. And the one that I always use is, no, imagine a business unit, not necessarily the, the whole organization, but the business unit. That, that, that is a quite large subset of organization. And then imagine taking a vertical slice of it. So few people from the top management, few people from the leadership, few people from the middle management, few teams from the front line select them and start doing things differently with them. You know, let them implement a little bit of innovation strategy. Let them use lean startup method when developing their ideas. Train those few middle managers on evaluating ideas, coaching the employees and helping them out. What you're creating is basically, you're helping those front runners to move the organization. At the same time, everybody else who is not part of that small change can see that. 
I can see, oh, new things are developing. People are not getting punished. They're getting rewarded. It's helping them in their daily life. They're happier. They're more satisfied. I want to try it as well. And then you start getting that effect where people start volunteering. Hey, when you have a few other teams that will become you know, more innovative, they're going to use Lean Startup. They're going to use Lean B2B. They're going to use these approaches. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that. And that's the best way. So you always want to create this effect for change where people are pulling it instead of you coming and being a police mm. officer. Oh, mm. everybody now goes to training in, I don't know, France, Canada, whatever is the best university in your part of the world. Everybody gets innovation training. We fly in Bruno and at the end to give you workshops and a pep talk. <laughs> that, that stuff doesn't work, you know, no matter oh, how good we are. <laughs> we can make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it only works if, if you keep us to coach your employees. Ah, sure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so th that, that, is, that is the thing that works. There are many academic and scientific reasons for that, but the most important one is you're actually creating results in short term while creating social acceptability in the mm -hmm. organization. It's not those freaks or those superstars. Oh, you know, he, he, he's a Steve Jobs. Let him be. You yeah. don't want yeah. You want people to, to get those skills and accept them as a normal part of their business instead of outliers. So you're creating experiments with uh, team composition or like team structure within the organization with people where you try a new approach. You let it kind of do the selling for you afterwards. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, perfect summary. That's great. Uh, so if we take a little bit of a step back, so if you're looking at uh, corporate innovation, what do you feel is getting more attention than it should? Like, what do you feel are the shiny objects of, of uh, corporate innovation? Okay. Shiny object of corporate innovation is something I call doing innovation. What okay. I mean by doing innovation is taking an idea and turning it into value proposition or, or a million or a billion dollar business. Why do I say that's a shiny object? Because we have a lot of answers to that. They might not all be perfect, but we do. Outcome-driven innovation, lean startup, design thinking, all the design methodologies, all the ways to actually work and develop ideas, venture studios, uh, M&As, so many different tactics, partnerships, uh, you know, startup partnerships, etc. It's important. It's important to keep refining that. But to me, this isn't what breaks corporate innovation. The problem or challenge isn't to develop one idea. The problem or the challenge, something that I believe is overlooked in the field of corporate innovation is how do you manage innovation? How do you repeat that process for 100 or 1,000 ideas while making sure that they're aligned across the organization that actually these ideas are relevant to your future, that the people are getting the support they need to get, that you're measuring that through innovation accounting system or similar, and that you're taking an informed decision on that. That is what I believe is overlooked or not given any attention to. I, I sometimes say like innovating in a sense, like developing ideas is almost trivial. That's not easy. It, I don't mean it's easy, but it's kind of, a lot of approaches are very similar. You know, figure out what the customer wants, figure out the cheapest or simplest way to deliver that, then do that, then scale, then keep repeating that. That's kind of at, at the core of a lot of modern innovation methods. Flavors are different, you know, exactly how you do that. Of course, it differs. But the thing is, my, my state or, or my position is we have figured it out to a large extent. 
if you want to be successful with corporate innovation, you need to figure out how to also manage that on a scale. And that is, if you look at, at a lot of uh, what I said in the beginning, thought leaders from Lean Startup that went into innovation space, a lot of them are now trying to figure it out. Startup way is kind of trying to offer that. Uh, if you look at Eshmauria and some of his newer offerings, also trying to offer like funnel, portfolio, things like that. Corporate startup from Tendaiviki, Dan Toma, Esther Gons was actually the first that was very comprehensive in looking at also innovation strategy and innovation management as kind of integrated innovation ecosystem together with actually innovation practice. So how, how does that land with you? Does any of that make sense to you? Uh, not really, but no. <laughs> uh, yeah, it yeah, makes sense. Uh, but so what I'm getting is that the, the tools are not the problem. The processes are more challenging at this stage of the game. Yes and no. Uh, what I would say is that th th there are two, two games in a corporate innovation. There's the game of developing ideas and there's the game of managing ideas. What I'm saying for managing ideas at a large scale, managing innovation teams, we have a lack of tools, we have a lack of processes, we have a lack of best practices. So all of that is missing. That, okay. that, that is, if, if, if a body has two legs, one is all pumped up like Arnold Schwarzenegger and the <laughs> other one is, you know, like, 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 like this, atrophied. It's like, oh, oh, please don't step on me. <laughs> And that's been changing. We started pumping the other leg now for for last you know five six years. <laughs> well, so so maybe this connects with the next question. So how, how do you see corporate innovation evolving and moving forward? Like, what trends are you tracking uh, personally? One of the big trends is, um, especially in the interface of uh, explore, exploit, discover, deliver, etc. So there's uh, more and more. Uh, around the structurally organizing companies to become more innovative. I'm a bit contrarian on that. You cannot organize yourself into excellence. Why should you then be able to organize yourself to innovativeness? Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, but what is good uh, is that it's educating people that you cannot hire a team, put them on outside and say, be innovative. I, I, I when I work with corporates, I always say like innovation should be with or in the units that have profit and loss responsibility. Don't create a service unit for innovation because people are going to expect them to innovate, i.e. make ideas that will bring money while their mandate is going to be don't innovate, go into business units and help them innovate. You're setting them up from failure from the very beginning. And again, this is purely corporate innovation challenge. That doesn't exist like in a startup or other entities like that. So. You know, th th that's, that's what's happening. Another trend uh, beyond that is uh, there's now a lot of approaches trying to use uh, venture studios, uh, either uh, building their own startups or venture studios as kind of a specific type of M&A, not, not traditional M&A, but specific venture studio that goes mm -hmm. out, validates an idea and then acquires a similar business in order to grow the market. So th there, is, there is more and more of this kind of things. Are they going to hang around? Well, let's have a chat in five to six years and, and see, see if they stay. Uh, but those are some of the, the biggest trends in corporate innovation specifically that I've been seeing. Uh, third one is that, of course, 
like any space, there are practitioners from different backgrounds coming and then they start adding to that. So you have service designers, you have people from agile world, you have people from strategy. I mean, strategy has always been connected to innovation, but they've been at some, you know, high, high Every levels. Level. Now, now they're trying to figure out the execution. What, what has been missing and the niche that I'm continuously filling and educating myself to continue filling is exactly the one that combines strategy and execution in the innovation space. Because I would say that a lot of lean startup practitioners, design thinkers, customer developers, they're good at executing and implementing. They were not and remain not that good at actually strategizing and then not just creating strategy, but operationalizing it at that middle level. And that, that is the, the, the atrophied leg that I was talking, <laughs> talking about a second ago. Yeah, yeah. But I'm much like, how much of this do you feel stems from the fact that a lot of the more traditional roles are probably either changing in nature or they're, 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 they're being reworked or they need to adapt to a new reality? And maybe the, um, I guess the landscape is not up to par with where it probably needs to be. You're talking about strategy, being in charge of strategy. That's not the same thing as being in charge of strategy in 1989. Like, and yet a lot of people are maybe still in their roles or they're like, they're viewing it or they're learning it from books that were written based on the previous generation. Uh, how much of this do you feel is the changing nature of, of, of role or function within organizations? That is happening as well. Uh, what, what I have to say after many, many years of experience is that, man, I wish that people were following strategy advice, uh, 20, 30, 40, 60 years old. Uh, it's not that bad. I have some very old strategy books up here. Uh, strategy is one of those things that uh, we have mastered centuries ago, but for whatever reason, we're really bad at uh, transferring that knowledge. What I've observed in a lot of organization is that it's one of those things where a little knowledge is very dangerous. Somehow only the superficial remains. Only the bad part of practice remains. I cannot tell you how many organizations I walked in that do have strategy departments. And then I ask them, show me your strategy. And it's not strategy at all. And I stretch my head. Those people aren't stupid, very educated, very good skill sets. How do you end up with something like this? Mm -hmm. Because of a little bit of practice. Because they only keep some things and don't actually take a deep dive into it. And I understand that not everybody in the world can afford or wants to take deep dives. And that's perfectly fine. But I also have expectations. If you're a chief strategy officer, I definitely expect you to know very, very well, at least, you know, a select number of strategy tools, approaches, methods. Like if someone comes and tells me, Bruno, I'm a Lean Startup coach. Good. Show me. Design an experiment right here, right now in front of me. Of course, not scientific experiment, but design a lean startup experiment in front of me. If you can't do that, how are you a lean startup expert? <laughs> yeah. For example, the, the, the same goes for, for strategy or anything. Be able to show it. I, I, I must admit that I use a lot of my approach uh, from martial arts. I've been training martial arts for more than 26 year, years now. I'm an instructor myself, and it's very simple in martial arts. You cannot just talk about it. You need to be able to show it. I cannot tell you, you know, uh, at the end, this is how you throw. I must grab someone and throw them in front of you. And then I must grab you and throw you. So you feel it, not just see it. 
I must be able to explain it to you verbally, walk you through it step by step, show it on someone else so you can see and understand the movement and then show it on you so you can feel the movement. To me, the same thing is with innovation coaching, strategy coaching or whatever. How can you teach if you've never done it? And that, that's, that's why I love your book, for example, because Lean B2B, second edition especially, comes after years of you practicing it and speaking to others who have practiced it and asking them what has worked in your practice, what hasn't worked in your practice. And then, you know, basically putting that in a book. That to me makes sense. <laughs> well, it also connects with what you mentioned about your, your game. So it's the same thing. You're trying to find the right balance to be able to get people to the conclusions that they need to reach through practice or, or actually playing in this case. So maybe as a last question, so where does your, your, your new book, Augmented Strategy, fit in all this? Like what led you to writing a book? Yeah, so it's, I want to say it's completely unrelated. It's somewhat unrelated, but of course it's related because it's, it's, it's something I've written. So it, kind of, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, it actually came from a conversation I had with uh, Dr. Dominic Dellerman. And uh, what we were discussing is, I, I basically said, you know, Dominic, what doesn't make sense to me is we have more data than ever. Like eBay in one year creates more data than all of mankind up until that year. And they're just looking at eBay. Now yeah. imagine adding yeah. Amazon, Alphabet, Amazon, yeah. Facebook. It, it's like, it's insane. We have big data. We, we have, you know, uh, statistical tools out of this world, man, it's so easy. Now anyone without training can just put data in and get fancy pictures and make sense. Why are our decisions not getting better? That was kind of the starting, the starting question. And what we came to is people are overwhelmed. There is actually too much data and people are approaching it the wrong way. They gather all the data and then they try to figure out what can we do with this data? Hey, how about we hire someone who is, whose job is to monetize that data. How about we hire someone else to, make us, to help us make sense of the data? And that's, that's a folly because there's so much data today, as I just said, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. You might find something eventually. I mean, you surely will. Is that going to be useful? Who knows? But why, why take that? So what we said is, hey, what we want to present is a different way to approach this. And that's what we call augmented strategy. We said, first, intuition should not be ignored. Intuition is your individual life experience. So intuition needs to be combined with data that you have. You should not start from data and intuition. You should start always from decision, ideally high-stake decision. What do we need to decide? Enter a new market, create a new product, hire a new team, set up a new organization. That's a high stake decision. And then work your way backwards. What type of data do we need? What type of insight do we need to make the best possible decision? And that is kind of what, what we are going into the book. Uh, one thing that I said to myself, again, you can see behind me a lot of books. I said, I want a book that can be read in one day. And I, I told Dominic, can you write a book together with me that's less than 100 pages? And he was like, oh, I can try, <laughs> you know? <laughs> He is a practitioner as well, but uh, he, he is primarily, not primarily, I, uh, he is a practitioner, but does write a lot of uh, academic papers. And academic papers are a little bit verbose, sometimes overly verbose and impenetrable. 
So I told him, Dominic, I don't want any of that. I want both you and me to write in plain English. And it has to be like, you know, I want it to be understandable by everyone. Why? How do you do this? And that is, that is how the whole book is structured. And the reason we called it augmented strategy is because we see that the, the data and all the technology happening out there from artificial intelligence, machine learning, and whatever else is going to be next is not about replacing your and my brain. It's about augmenting our brains and allowing us to make a better decision compared to if we don't, did not have access to all of that. So that is kind of how it ties in. And what, what I always do, even, I mean, with you, I've been obviously, we, we are two experts in the field, so we can discuss that like that. But I always try not to use uh, terminology. Like I avoid using Lean Startup, Kaizen, you know, Toyota terminology, Lean terminology. I, I always try to say it in plain language, you know. It's about iterations. It's about experimentation. It's about this. It's not about MVPs and business model hypotheses. Yeah, it's yeah. about testing assumptions yeah. and figuring out how to deliver value sooner. And the, the same approach is in this book. We don't talk about big data. We don't talk about stratification, uh, probabilities, etc. It, it's all about, hey, you have a high stake decision. How do you make the best decision you can? By accessing the needed data. How do you do that in practical way? How do you... <laughs> awesome thanks, thanks for taking the time to, to join me on the the uh, the, the the podcast where, where can people go to learn more about uh the book your work the game everything yeah so the easiest is uh, www.pesec.no uh, anyone listening and watching at the end has my contact as well you can always reach out he can connect you uh I make available almost everything on my website. So a lot of things I mentioned, you will find the book, you will find a lot of free resources, eBooks, white papers, etc. Everything is there. Uh, I don't hide my contact information, no contact forms. You can find my email, home address and a phone number. Just reach out. Always happy you know, to help and, and, and have a chat. But don't show up at my address. I, I will probably not even answer. I'll just look at the pee hole and be like, who is this? Oh, you got to remember you're a martial art expert as well. So <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, Etienne.